Sydney Students' Union, The Scoop, on Sunday. The last opportunity for humanity. That's how Boris Johnson described COP26, which came to a conclusion this weekend in Glasgow. But did world leaders rise to the occasion? This is a Scoop on Sunday COP26 special. My name's Thomas Copeland, and we're live tonight from the Queen's Students' Union. For the last two weeks, the Scoop has been reporting from inside and outside the conference. And tonight, we're looking at what happened in Glasgow, what it all really means, and what on earth happens next. It's all here on The Scoop on Sunday. Thank you so much for your company tonight. So, the COP26 climate conference in Glasgow came to a dramatic conclusion this weekend after negotiations were extended for over 24 hours. Scoop reporter AJ was at the conference all of this week and uh, looked back at all of his reporting on the Scoop webpage and on our social media. I talked to him live from inside the conference centre on Friday, hours away from the original deadline for the conference. Take a listen. Okay, AJ, thank you so much for being with us and for all of your amazing reporting over the course of this week. Um, Before we get into the proper substance, tell us, where are you right now and what's happening around you? Well, right now, as you might be able to hear, I am in the Blue Zone at COP26. This is the area where press and uh, parties and a few observers, like many government organizations, are allowed to come in. This is where the negotiations are happening themselves. Obviously, I'm not in the negotiating rooms per se, but this is this is that same zone. Uh, at the moment, um, right behind me, there is the entrance to the plenary which is where there is an informal stock taking that's been happening, where different countries have been expressing their views towards the recently released second draft of what, in theory, will become that Glasgow agreement, per se, what's called the cover decision. Yeah, okay. I I want to talk about all the substance as well, but just before we do that, AJ, what, I mean, what the last couple of days been like for you? Paint us a picture of what what you've been doing, what's actually happening on the ground, who's been wandering about the place, how have you been spending your time, what's the kind of energy like in the room? So the first couple of days I was here, really up until today, there were more press conferences than you could possibly attend, and with some very interesting characters too. So I've been to press conferences from the United States, States uh, House of Representatives delegation with the European Union. I've been to all of the press conferences at the presidency uh, without Sharma, Sharma has hosted since I've been here. Um, the high level segment uh, officially opened Tuesday and they had a sort of opening ceremony for that that I attended. But in between these different things and if there aren't many events I'm too interested in or if I have to work, what I often do is I situate myself where I am right now. There's this intersection between some of the two most used press conferences, uh, press conference rooms. And so this is where you get a lot of these famous people walking about. So not only have I seen journalists I recognize from uh, the New York Times or CNN or Sky News or BBC, but there's also the world leaders. Uh, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres has passed by. John Kerry passed by me just here only 10 minutes ago. Nicola Sturgeon's been a face people have seen a lot and so forth and so forth. Oh, you're absolutely name dropping now, AJ. Uh, you've you've seen all of the celebrities and perhaps not as well organized as you might have thought it would be, considering those kind of names that you've just mentioned. Yeah, no, it, I, I've talked to uh, a couple of journalists who've been to uh, one cop before and two cops before, respectively, and they both noted this is by far the biggest but it's also by far the most disorganized. Now, the organizers have attributed that primarily to COVID-19, the difficulty of having to have um, lower limits on how many people can be in certain rooms. Um, but it, it has been disorganized, uh, even over some somewhat basic things at the high-level segment opening while the ministers were speaking, um, and indeed at the informal stock-taking that I just went to. Uh, they invited members of the press in, but they had hardly any seats dedicated to the press. So I had to try and find, so they told me to sit at a delegation seat. So I sat at the Thailand delegation seat. I sat behind where it said Poland. And so anyone watching is gonna suddenly become a delegate for these countries. Um, but they just said, take those. And if someone shows up, give up the seat. And a couple of times that's happened to me. Well, they, I wonder what that says as we move from all that kind of fun and games stuff, AJ, onto the actual serious negotiations that are taking place and the, and the agreement that inevitably will or maybe will not be signed and, and what exactly is in it. Um, uh, what does it look like the legacy from, from Glasgow is going to be? Are, uh, is, is, there a, is there a feeling in the room that there's, 
uh, optimism about an agreement that will be signed uh, and what might it contain? Well, it doesn't seem to be anything on the level of Paris at the moment in terms of that amount of fanfare. Uh, it does seem like it is going to be notable. The eyes of the world are certainly upon this conference right now. Uh, and the general state is we're looking at an outcome with quite ambitious rhetoric, but that's pretty light on the specifics. That's pretty light on concrete details. So in terms of legacy, we might be looking to something along the lines of the conferences at Rio de Janeiro or Copenhagen, or maybe Kyoto, but not quite the same legacy of Paris. I should note, having said that, though, I just came from the Giants Causeway press conference room where they were going to be uh, press conferences hosted by the European Union and Germany's Minister for the Environment, two quite major press conferences that were supposed to happen today, and those both got cancelled at the last minute. This has been seen as an indication that negotiators are still cracking at it and that there are still big efforts to make the deal bigger and better, or maybe by some countries like Saudi Arabia to water it down some. Uh, it is even bit, it has been increasingly suggested that today might not even be the last day of the conference. Yeah, let us let me come back to, to that, that question of extended negotiations, AJ, and let me ask you, first of all, there might be some people listening, no doubt there are people listening who will say, why, why on earth can't, we, can't they get to an agreement? This is such an important issue. What are the major disagreements and who, who, who are those, who are the parties that are disagreeing? What are the areas in which there are considerable um, considerable uh, disagreements as to, to what, what way um, the final publication and final deal should be constituted? Who's disagreeing with who? So there was a lot of uh, areas of focus coming into the conference, but with the release of the drafts of the cover decision, it's condensed down to two main areas uh, that are in dispute. Fossil fuels and uh, climate finance. So in terms of fossil fuels, as it stands now, the drafts calls on nations to phase out, quote, unabated coal and inefficient fossil fuel subsidies. Now, in the original draft, the word inefficient wasn't in there for fossil fuel subsidies, nor was the word unabated before coal power. So what we're seeing is that's really the one of the key areas of disagreement here. A lot of that is believed to be the results of countries like Saudi Arabia, China, and India, who are currently quite reliant on fossil fuels, wanting to roll back some of that rhetoric. Uh, Saudi Arabia gets a lot of its money from fossil fuels, so taking out subsidies from that doesn't make a lot of sense to them. On the other hand, we have developed countries like the US and the UK that are less reliant on those, as well as small countries like the Marshall Islands that are very insistent in their preference that those qualifiers be taken out and it just be the phase out of those things. Uh, and then in regards to climate finance, there has been not as much shift. The new draft is actually a little bit uh, stronger in the language that asks climate financing for developed developing nations coming from the richer countries to be amped up and to be doubled by 2025. Uh, with that, there's not as much debate so much as there is a question of should we push it even higher? The resistance there isn't as strong as it is with fossil fuel subsidies and coal power. Okay, and that's going to mean a huge amount to people as, as this conference comes to a close. The final thing I've been reading in the last couple of days, just what you've been saying, UN deadlines tend to be flexible enough. Um, give us an indication of what that might look like. Is that, you know, an extra week of negotiations? Is it an extra couple of hours of negotiations? Some people who've been involved in, in, in politics might remember the, the good old days of Brexit when you had negotiations that were being pushed and pulled by by similar amounts of time. And if it is, is, is it in actual fact, AJ, maybe good news? If negotiations are extended, does that indicate that there's a willingness to make an agreement, but just a little bit more time an energy needed to, to push it over the line? Or is that bad news because it means that there are still areas of disagreement that need to be resolved? In terms of expectations for the time, um, I would be really surprised if it went more than a week over. Uh, but we're probably, what we're looking at here is right now about a, a somewhat of a toss-up range. It might end by today. Will it end today by 6 p.m.? Almost certainly not. Will it end before the end of Friday, before Saturday begins? Possibly. Uh, the last COP in Madrid went two days over and ended on a Sunday. So I think it's more reasonable to expect this conference to end anytime from when we're recording this on Friday to Sunday. I wouldn't expect next Friday this to still be going on. As far as what that means, 
it means that negotiators are, are taking things extremely, extremely seriously. Now, on the one hand, that might be countries that are more concerned about climate change pushing for a stronger deal. On the other hand, it may also include countries like Saudi Arabia and China that want to see uh, a slightly more watered down deal. It might include them pushing to get some of this rhetoric uh, taken out. So in terms of you know, whether this is a good thing or a bad thing, it depends on your approach. If you think that this deal is already too little, more time is only a good thing because going less is still a loss if you consider yourself in a loss right now. But if you're one of the people who think that this agreement is, is already a win, even if a relatively modest one, more time might put that more in jeopardy as countries like Saudi Arabia likely stick to their guns even further. Well, we're just going to have to wait and see, AJ. Thank you so much uh, for talking to me. Enjoy the rest of the conference as, as much as you can. We'll see you back in the studio in Belfast on Sunday. Um, uh, and thank you so much. Thank you, Thomas. Have a great weekend. Okay, well, AJ is with me uh, back in the studio here on Sunday. AJ, thanks so much for being with us. In the 24 hours since I talked to you there on Friday and the end of the conference on Saturday, we had a whole conference worth of drama and news. Give us an update. What happened in between when I talked to you on Friday and the end of the conference? And there's a lot in there. Yeah, it's a pleasure, Thomas. Um, uh, to say that there's a lot in there, uh, at least in terms of drama, is certainly not an understatement. We, uh, I had thought at the time, and it was the general understanding from sources that language from that draft was pretty solidified and that not a lot would change. More changed than I think people expected at that point. Uh, namely, there was a lot of drama around the language of fossil fuels uh, and fossil fuel subsidies and coal power. I mentioned this a little bit last time. That did get changed a bit more. So what we are left with now at the end is the language that countries will phase down unabated coal power and phase out inefficient fossil fuel subsidies, comma, recognizing the need for a just transition. So the just transition part was added in, in the third draft. What that essentially amounts to is another potential get out. It's a way of saying we can't just cut coal and cut subsidies for fossil fuels because we have to protect people's jobs too. So if you're a country like Saudi Arabia, you might say, well, we can't cut our uh, oil production at the moment because people need those jobs. And what, 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 which were the main countries bringing that in at the end? Because it was quite a, a significant and yet last minute change. Uh, who were the main proponents of, of changing the language from what amounted to phase out to, to, to what amounts to phase down? Right. Those kind of considerations as to about livelihood and well-being and jobs. Uh, who's, who was responsible for that? And, and what's their kind of argument for, for why that was the right decision? So the general argument with um, the just trans need for a just transition, we knew that, by the way, Saturday morning. That was published uh, with several hours to go until things would close. That is probably the working of China, India, and other developing countries that are still more reliant on coal. Uh, there was even some talk, I heard from some journalists, that Poland might have contributed to that as well, uh, another nation that's quite reliant on coal at the moment. But what was really big and dramatic was the phase down. Because what we have happening is they've announced the closing plenary. It's two hours away. The language still has, without phase down, it has phase out of unabated coal power. India, in particular, with some support from China, starts sticking to this. And they start saying, we will not sign this deal. And the thing about the Glasgow Climate Pact and, and the whole way these cops work is the deal is supposed to have consensus. It's supposed to have no opposition. So under that immense pressure from India, other parties like the United States and other big players capitulated and said, fine, we'll say phase down of unabated coal power. Uh, and what you have actually at the end as the closing ceremony continues is a lot of countries being really upset about that. Mm. Uh, one, one delegate, I forget from which country, said that it was a completely untransparent, uh, from Mexico, said that it was a completely untransparent final change and they were extremely disappointed. And I suppose, I mean, if you're from India or perhaps China or, or some of the other countries that were keen to see this amendment at the end, it's a compelling argument because you say to yourself, how come these countries in the West, the EU, the UK and the US get to burn as much coal as they want, see all the economic benefits from that, and yet now we're being told we can't do that. Uh, you know, when you, hundreds of thousands of people in India on $1 a day, it's a compelling argument if you're from those places. And yet, you, you, you know, in the room, did you find that there was a significant amount of international 
Um, what, what was the reaction to that for, for, from delegates from around the world? Well, that's a really good question. And you're right that there is, there's a reason that these countries, there's a reason that India fought for it to be phased down. There's a reason that these countries fought for a just transition because they were bearing in mind their own economies and their own people. Uh, maybe that was for political purposes, but nevertheless, they oh, yeah. were trying to look after their interest. But as far as the reaction in the room, uh, generally speaking, horror um, or shock, at least. Because the other thing about the original wording was it said phase out of unabated coal, but it never gave a deadline. In theory, that could be 20 years. It could be 100 years. It could be two or 300 years. So really, this change amounted to a very stubborn position where countries like India, what, what, what the interpretation was is they're saying, yeah, we need to keep coal power in our future indefinitely. And, and one of those particular reactions you said of horror came from Alex Sharma, who was the COP mm. president. I think we can listen to a clip here that, that really did the rounds and caught an awful lot of attention over the last couple of days. Let's take a listen. May I just say to all uh, delegates, um, I apologize for the way this process has unfolded. Um, and uh, I'm deeply sorry. I also understand the, the deep disappointment but I think, as you have noted, it's also vital that we um, protect this package. Well, that was Alex Sharma giving his opinion on, or at least intimating his opinion on those last minute changes at AJ. Uh, all of that considered, and especially in the context of that kind of reaction from, you know, the guys in charge of the entire conference, we'll be talking about this throughout the rest of the show. Um, was COP26 a success? That's a really brilliant question. It, it completely depends on the kind of person you are. Um, there are a lot of ways to look at it. You could look strictly at the goals. I think it's always understood that the spirit was they wanted in this conference to keep 1.5 alive, keep it within reach. This And just, sorry, AJ, 1.5, that oh, comes yeah. from the Paris Agreement, doesn't it? Yes. So it was language originating from the Paris Agreement. The idea was, was scientists were saying, if global temperatures exceed 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels, that's when climate change gets particularly bad. That's when ecosystem collapse uh, happens at increasing rates in different areas. That's when something like 80 to 90% of coral reefs start mm -hmm. to die. Um, so it's all about keeping that within reach. Yes, that is the idea. That's also generally conceived as the turning, generally believed to be the turning point for small island nations like the Marshall Islands and Kiribati. If it's more than 1.5, sea level rise will likely be so high that they will cease to exist. So that's kind of the spiritual goal. Some people have been saying that 1.5 is dead according to this. This, this doesn't condemn 1.5 to death, but the agreements that we got out of Glasgow, those pledges amount to action that if it were taken, and we should bear in mind in most of these climate change talks that have happened so far, including Paris, they're not being lived up to. But if these pledges are taken at face value, we're talking about keeping warming to about 1.8 degrees Celsius, not 1.5. So it doesn't kill 1.5, but it doesn't secure it either. Mm -hmm. uh, give us some of the, the, the good news, I suppose, AJ. I mean, people who are trying to take a maybe more optimistic look at this are saying it's the first time that uh, some of this language, some of these goals referenced to specific fossil fuels is down on UN paper. Is that significant? Again, it really kind of depends, mm. um, to be completely honest with you. But, th but there is very good news along those lines. It is shifting the rhetoric. I think this COP26, what it is, what's really become evident is that people all over the world understand they, they, their climate change is now perceptible to them. And if you go back to even just Paris, the last big time we saw this, it was still perceived by most of the public, I think, to be a distant thing. Now, I think the overwhelming majority of people understand that we are seeing these effects right now. Uh, I hear you had very warm temperatures over here in the British Isles uh, earlier in the summer. Um, in my home state of Tennessee, we've had terrible flooding, uh, stuff that wouldn't happen if it weren't for this. Uh, and the rhetoric that we see in that regard, 
making it clear that they want a phase down of coal, a phase out of fossil fuels. Will that transfer directly into national government actions? Maybe not, but we are seeing a lot of substantial action from the private sector or from local governments. The UK's high-level champion at the summit, Nigel Topping, made some very good notes on this remark, saying that actions that private companies are taking are not always being taken into account when we get these estimates that say we're going to have 1.8 degrees of warming or however much degrees of warming, because those are often outside of the national right. pledges. Um, uh, Mayor Kahn of London as well noted that a lot of these national governments are delayers because they have so much politics to live through. But a lot of times local governments are able to take much more significant action. So potentially a little bit of good news there. AJ, stick with us. Uh, we'll be talking a little bit later on in the show. This is The Scoop on Sunday. The time is 21 minutes past seven. Well, as if there wasn't enough drama inside the COP26 conference centre, our reporter Emer Smith was on the streets of Glasgow last week reporting on all the action there. I chatted to her live from the centre of Glasgow on Friday. Take a listen. Okay, Emer, you're outside COP26 in Glasgow. Okay, Emer, you're outside COP26 in Glasgow reporting for us this week, taking in everything that's been happening. Um, lots of protests. Give us an idea of the energy kind of on, on the streets at the moment outside, outside COP26 in Glasgow. I think at the minute there's a lot of disappointment at what has been happening. I think a lot of the feeling that's kind of around the conference and certainly outside the conference talking to people has been that there's a lot of Indigenous voices and youth voices who may be, although they're being listened to, it's tokenistically so. So it's kind of a lot of exclusion from action. Um, there's a lot of disappointment, I think, around um, kind of the cutting of adoption fund was mentioned yesterday where money was kind of coming from one place to the other and a lot of developing countries were feeling that they're losing out on places where they could be facing. Well, there's a lot of like, Phasing out coal was kind of the focus of a lot of the agreements here, whereas that's fine for countries who are like reliant on oil and gas. But I think a lot of the feeling was that it wasn't really fair on countries who couldn't afford to do that. So there's, there's I think, a general feeling that a lot of groups um, have been left behind in the changes that are kind of happening here, which is kind of creating like a big disappointment. A lot of people are saying it's kind of inaccessible. They're quite angry at the fact that there's not a lot of um, kind of space for involvement and space for people's voices to be listened to not just heard but listened to and kind of the change that would kind of happen with that so a lot of disappointment with the outcomes of it but kind of a cautious hope maybe for like it will kind of continue a movement on yeah but generally I, I think it's not overly optimistic okay and on outside Glasgow I mean give us an idea how many people are hanging around it's it's large protests what form are they taking is it people milling around generally or is it kind of are you picking up though there's a protest happening you know a couple a couple of streets down there another side of the city um and I wonder also I mean has Glasgow changed in order to accommodate the number of people that, that are out and about publicly in the city centre areas is there are, are there many signs how's Glasgow changed to try to accommodate the number of people who've been landing in really from across the globe <laughs> There's been a lot, there's a lot of posters about the place advertising COP26, but I don't think the streets are a whole lot busier maybe. There's there is like a couple of hundred, couple of thousand maybe protesters kind of here over the space of two weeks, but it is quite a long sort of stretch for people to be here. So there are people who'd be here um, and the protests are probably taking about like marches that I've um, kind of seen have been like maybe a couple of hundred people. Nothing massive, though. I think last Saturday there was um, a good couple of thousand people on the streets and almost maybe near 100,000 across the UK. Um, but in Glasgow itself, I think just because it's kind of inaccessible with COVID regulations, a lot of people have had to stay at home. But there are still... A good couple of hundred people at the protests and small ones some kind of demonstrations outside the likes of JP Morgan and Drax would have had like kind of a, a good maybe a hundred or so people and that would kind of translate then into marches towards COP26 where there would be kind of large gatherings of people so there has been definitely kind of a support for um people around the place um in terms of whether roads i think have been some roads have definitely been closed um the police have been kind of closing off roads as marches go on and generally kind of just kind of keep an eye on the place so it's definitely a kind of a higher police presence than would usually be felt in any city but in some ways that's understandable with kind of the nature of um the severity of the climate crisis i think a lot of people i think there's a fear that it would get kind of heated which it hasn't done so far it's kind of been fairly atmos kind of a like a peaceful kind of atmosphere just kind of a 
so it's not been too not been too hectic I don't think in terms of kind of what's changed to public transport and the likes of that mm-hmm. and in terms in terms of the demographics of the people outside COP who've, who've clearly traveled to be there I wonder sort of two questions Emer one in terms of average age are there lots of kind of student ages uh, is it older than that is it retired folks what are the kind of demographics there and we've been hearing as well from you a really eclectic crowd people have really traveled from from all over the globe to be there what what kind of people are you bumping into and seeing on the streets outside cop 26 in glasgow as you said it has been a whole mix of people from all different areas across the globe um i was talking to some brilliant brazilians today um three um activists who traveled over from brazil um and the same there's been months um from kenya young people from all over the globe but there has been as well it's a real mix of people um, there's kind of young people, so teenagers, people in their 20s, but there's also kind of like that older generation who would have been here and would have attended many protests during their life. Um, so kind of like maybe like kind of like, to be honest, a whole mix of people, though, maybe excluding children. There's not a lot of children here. Um, that's kind of understandable, I guess, in the terms that they would be in primary school at the minute. But there has been there's a general mix of people and a lot of I'd say like people who have more time in their hands who are coming towards the end of their career and kind of can afford to take time off. Um, there'd be a lot of people as well. I was talking to ones who would be quite worried for their grandchildren. So there's a whole a whole kind of intergenerational kind of community that is here kind of supporting each other, but also here for their own different reasons, whether it's to protect um, their grandchildren or their children, or whether it's to fight for um, the current future that young people are going to have. So it has been a kind of a whole like mix of people from literally all walks of life, though, obviously for those who can get here. And if there was, if it was more accessible, I think there would be a lot more people um, coming from all different places, but travel costs to Glasgow and the likes of that can be quite expensive for certain groups, I think. And in terms of Belfast, I know there's there's a group of people over from Belfast. I mean, uh, uh, has there been a strong contingent of, 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 of students from Queens, other people around Belfast? I know uh, you got the ferry over. Well, was there a strong representation of people from Belfast? Clearly, it's easier to get to Glasgow from Belfast than it is from Rio or Kenya. Um, I mean, are you hearing quite a lot of Northern Irish voices on the streets or is, is it much more international than that? In terms of people from Belfast, Northern Ireland, there have been, there's a strong contingent of like a core group of people, um, but kind of in terms of students that I kind of would have seen, there'd probably maybe be about four or five of us um, from Queens and from Belfast. Um, I think with just taking time off uni and everything, but I think for some people it's been very worth it. I know Kay and Anna, who've been big um, part of the Fridays for Future movement in the past in Belfast are here and they've been here for the two weeks. So they've been juggling their uni work with kind of protesting and stewarding um, different events over here. Um, there would be, so kind of there is a, general-ish kind of student population, but not a, not a giant kind of contingent of students, um, especially students in terms of Belfast. In terms of the voices, um, there would be a lot of people, I think, from the mainland of UK, um, just purely, I think, because it's accessible. Um, but there's kind of been people kind of, as you say, from kind of all walks of life and from all different countries. So it has been nice to see that kind of global support and whether people traveled different sort of ways, like we chose to take the ferry purely from a carbon footprint and ease of access basis it was handy enough to get here um but there's kind of people being taken all different forms of transport to get here as well and it just really depends on your situation i think and whether people could get here and who is able to come and how they got here i think okay Emer, thank you so much we'll see you back in belfast at the weekend i'm sure thank you so much for all the work you've been doing while you're over there reporting back for us um it's been a real pleasure thank you so much thank you very much well, that was Emer Smith, um, Scoop reporting live there from Glasgow on Friday evening. With me now is uh, Flavia Goeva, host of the Eco Scoop. Uh, Flavia, thanks so much for being with me. What kind of reaction have you heard to this decision from climate activists, protesters that you and Emer have been chatting to? I think generally the sentiment amongst like climate activists um, is just a general sense of disappointment. I think the expectations were quite high for COP26 and the outcomes. Um, and especially with the watering down of the wording within the agreement, I think as it's kind of progressed, the disappointment has sort of grown with, amongst um, activists. I know, for example, AJ actually spoke to Professor John Barry um, earlier on in the week. And even before we'd reached the decision of Saturday, he was already declaring that 1.5 was dead. And I think that's very much what activists are feeling that, you know, we failed to secure that 1.5 at COP26, which was what was expected. Um, and so there's very little trust. Yeah, and you can, you, I think you can read back on AJ's chat with uh, Professor John Barry on the Scoop webpage. It's tricky, Flavia, because I suppose on one hand, you know, climate activists are always going to want governments to go further, to push harder. 
But even, I mean, for this conference, the US, the UK, EU and others were briefing that, you know, this was the last chance for humanity. Mm. They were pitching. I mean, this was, there was no expectation management going on here. So it's probably fair to say that even the general public might feel a little bit disappointed from the, from, from the ultimate consequences of the whole thing. I think that's absolutely fair to say. And I think, you know, part of it, of the disappointment is how it was sort of built up, like you just said, declaring it, that it was the last chance for humanity and then having what is ultimately a very disappointing result for some people um, is, is almost understandable. Um, yeah. Well, let, let's try to inject a few positives in if we yeah. can. It, I mean, I wonder, uh, maybe it's just because well, we're here and we're so close to Glasgow. Uh, there's been so much hype, so much conversation about mm. COP26. It's been nonstop on the news everywhere. Conversations about the climate and climate change are much more commonplace than perhaps they would have been a few years ago. Is there something positive to be said about the momentum, the sense of urgency that the COP26 has contributed to? Is that a positive you can take away? Is that something you can feel ever so slightly? I think so. I think there's definitely been a growing interest in the general public on climate change and the general acceptance that it is a problem that is here and there's something that needs to be dealt with quite seriously. And I think that's because of the various factors. I mean, extreme weather has become more commonplace and it's not something that's just for the global south anymore. It's something that very much developed nations are also feeling. So it, it has become something to be taken very seriously. There's obviously been a growth in activism as well. So the momentum is there and hopefully it will stay um, as we kind of move on to COP27, which is going to be in Egypt next year. And, you know, some of the decisions that were reached are encouraging, you know, acknowledging fossil fuels as a problem. Um, and actually putting it down into the Glasgow Agreement is positive. You know, making provisions that relate to methane as well is also really positive because it shows that they are following the science and they are following what's sort of being put out there and is being taken seriously. Yes, the commitments are sort of not as strong as would have been expected, but I, I think there are some positives to be taken from it. It's a shame, really, that we're do well, AJ in particular. I feel bad for you that you had to go to Glasgow and you don't get to go to Egypt instead for, <laughs> to cover to cover COP. That would be much more interesting. Flavia, stay with us. We're going to come back and talk a little bit more about this uh, later on in the show. This is a scoop on Sunday. The time is thirty-two minutes past seven. Okay, well, I'm joined now live from Glasgow by Lucy Dunn, Editor-in-Chief of the Glasgow Guardian. Uh, Lucy, many thanks for making time for us. I'm sure it's been a really hectic few weeks for you. What was the atmosphere like amongst students, people in Glasgow in the lead up to this conference? Yeah, so, um, well, first of all, thanks for having me on. Um, in terms of the atmosphere in Glasgow, I would say there was two um, main things to discuss in terms of, like, at a local level, there was probably quite a lot of animosity, if I'm honest with you, towards the conference. Um, Glasgow's been dealing with a housing crisis now. A lot of students have been affected by that. Um, and a lot of that was actually linked to landlords withholding flats because they're waiting for delegates and cops to come over. Um, this caused a lot of issues for people. Um, and unfortunately, there were people that have been quite um, left out on a limb as, as a consequence in that. In terms of the more um, COP-related climate crisis issue, I think attitudes, particularly among students, were dubious about whether the conference would actually do any good. But I think there definitely was an air of anticipation and people were really looking to see which famous politicians would be walking down um, the streets of the West End. Okay. Uh, has Glasgow felt any different over the last couple of weeks, just out and about in the city before we even get on to what happened inside the conference centre, Lucy? Yes, yeah, so I think there's definitely been a buzz around Glasgow. Um, the conference was anticipated um, and as the, the days and weeks leading up to the conference um, progressed, we saw roads getting shut off and we saw um, people renting out their flats to the to different delegates coming over. And so you could feel things building up slowly. Um, as a medical student as well, you know, I, I was actually in placement and a lot of um, clinics were switched to online clinics again. So there were these changes that were coming into play. Um, during the time of the conference, though, I would say that the West End wasn't actually as busy as we expected it to be. Um, and there was the, the main focus of, of everything was happening um, at the conference itself and, and very much separate from the rest of the West End. 
But how you and your team are reporting all of this, clearly for the Glasgow Guardian and for, for sort of all media in Glasgow, this has been such a major occasion. Where were you during it? Where were your reporters during it? What was going on? And, and how were you trying to, to report such an, a massive issue, which is clearly so, so important to students in particular and young people? Yeah, so I think um, what I would say first and foremost is that I'm incredibly proud of the Glasgow Guardian team. Uh, we got masses of people reporting on COP. So I was the one in the actual conference in the Blue Zone itself. Um, but we had about just short of 40 other people um, working on the ground. So I think it's probably fair to say that we covered almost every single Extinction Rebellion in protest <laughs> and there were a lot of them in Glasgow um, and we had people looking to go to the campsite that they're all staying at in the south sides we had loads of people on the Fridays for Future event that um, Greta Thunberg led um, and what was fantastic about having so many people on that was that we got people at all different parts of these big marches speaking to politicians and um, young activists slightly older activists um, and we got a real fantastic colourful mix of content as a result. And then you, clearly you've been close to kind of the activists and people in reaction to this inside and outside the conference. What have you picked up about reactions, about how people feel about the conclusions of this conference? Has it been generally positive, generally negative, somewhere in between, a little bit of both? Um, has COP been considered a success from the people that you've been talking to? Yeah, so I would probably split this into two different categories. So within the conference, um, there's definitely a feeling of resignation, I would say, for the most part. Um, I think people are well aware that the hopes coming into COP26 were a lot higher um, than, than what's been delivered. But I think these people have also seen the, the conversations that have gone on um, and as such probably understand that, you know, when, when you do these negotiations, you won't really ever come away feeling fully satisfied, um, which is what was said in the final talks yesterday. So I think there's a bit of mixed feeling within inside the conference. Um, although I know definitely countries in the global south were, were really not happy with the last minute changes um, about coal yesterday. In terms of outside, the reaction um, has definitely been one of disappointment and frustration. I think a lot of people, um, a lot of students want to see action. They don't want to have all these two weeks of talks that disrupt the city and in all honesty, don't lead us to this 1.5 degrees that um, was being paraded around um, at the very start of the conference. So I think there's definitely a feeling of injustice. Um, and I wonder, well, when we look at the legacy of COP in Glasgow, do you think that this will be something that people will continue to talk about, students in Glasgow, people in Glasgow for an extended period of time? There's been so much conversation, so much news coverage, so much hype about COP26 in Glasgow. Will there be a legacy at all? Or do you think this is one of the things in a couple of weeks time, the media and everybody else will have moved on to the next thing? Um, I think that despite the mixed opinions about COP26, realistically, it will be remembered. You know, it's it's been such a massive event for Glasgow. And I think actually in some ways, as much as there have been negatives to the hosting of COP26 in Glasgow, I think there's also been a lot of positives. Um, there are so many people from all over the world that have come to our city that, you know, Scottish people are typically very self-deprecating. And it's really nice to see um, these people from really exotic places are, are coming to our city and really enjoying the culture. Um, so from that side of things, 100%. And I think the protests and everything happening on the streets um, has made this atmosphere around about COP very colourful. And, and it's been something really interesting to be a part of. And I can't see that being forgotten. I saw a wonderful headline from The Hill, which is a, a US-based publication that reports on stuff from the Capitol, talking about how um, AOC had tried a controversial Scottish drink. <laughs> and pictures with yes. Her. <laughs> the Nicola Sturgeon showing her the her iron brew. I think a lot of different people from around the world tried it. Um, I think there was some world leader who thought it was alcoholic um, and didn't like it at all. There's been mixed opinions. Um, I did see that video of AOC, but alcoholic iron brew is something that is, could definitely be marketable. <laughs> and, and let's actually talk about Nicola Sturgeon and domestic policy. And Nicola Sturgeon was clearly very visible at the conference. I think she was there for for most of it, if not all of it. Um, mm -hmm. What sort of a position are the SNP, the Scottish Government, taking on, on all of this conference? Because, I mean, clearly there are positives to, to take away from it, or, or are they kind of distancing them, themselves from it? How does it play in domestic Scottish politics? 
Well, it's interesting you say that because I actually, um, I interviewed Nicola Sturgeon the other day um, and she, <laughs> I might, might as well. Um, no, and, and you know, she was, I would say, pretty much more forthcoming than I expected. Um, you know, I think there is a sense of frustration in some ways, you know, given the stance, the political stance of the SNP, that Scotland didn't have a bigger hand to play at the negotiating table. Um, and, and Scotland, in, in fairness as well, has very um, positive net zero goals. I think they're some of the most ambitious so far in the world, looking to reach net zero at 2045, um, which is five years ahead of the rest of Britain. So I think you, know, you you do see a bit of a of a push from Scotland to really almost outshine uh, maybe maybe Westminster, um, but yeah, I, I think in in some ways it, the conference being hosted in Glasgow, it would have been nice to see um, the Scottish government um, having a bit a bit of a bigger role to play there. Okay, well, Lucy, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much for talking to me, uh, Lucy Dunn, there, editor in chief of the Glasgow Guardian. This is the scoop on Sunday. The time is uh, what time is it? Forty-one minutes past seven. I can't convert that into the other direction fast enough. Here is how you can get in touch with the scoop. Contact us now. Text oh seven eight four eight eight six six five eight zero. Email the scoop at queensradio.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter. Okay, well, with me in the studio is AJ and Flavia, who've been part of our COP26 reporting team. Thank you so much for, for staying with me, guys. Um, AJ, it was quite a week for you inside the conference centre. A couple of fantastic personal moments, people that you bumped into. Talk us through what it's kind of like to report from a massive conference like COP. How does it all actually work? How much access do you get? Who are, who are the random people that you bump into? What's it like? When I was first going in, uh, completely... <laughs> Starstruck, shall we say. And that was pretty much the mood for the first whole day. Four different layers of security, and you get past all that, and uh, especially from someone who came from a town in the United States of 800 people. I mean, there's 25 times that many people in a space that is maybe a quarter the size of my town, just in this one <laughs> Scottish events campus. But combine that with everything else. I, I Within the first hour I was there, I saw... First Minister Nicola Sturgeon. I saw Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi from the United States. Um, it at first it was really hard for me just because I've not covered anything nearly this big. Uh, eventually, I will admit I, I kind of settled into the groove of things. But um, as far as accessibility goes, it was fairly good. I really didn't face any problems from being from a smaller paper. Um, I should say I was officially there reporting for a paper in Tennessee. Um, but unofficially also doing work for Scoop. So I didn't face any obstacles because of that. But it was at times a bit unorganized. There were many press conferences that were too full, and so members of the press who got there a little bit after, um, you know, they, they might not have room. And sometimes you would be told that there would be seating for the press, and there wasn't seating for the press. And in, in one instance, we were just told, sit behind the Thailand delegation and hope that they don't show up. And if they do, just say you're sorry and try and go behind Poland's seat or but, something but like it's that. It's odd, isn't it? But that's such a massive conference would, yeah. would be. But then again, I suppose when it is so large like that, there's a certain amount of you have to just go, well, listen, I hope people can just be sensible. You bumped into a couple of interesting people, though, with the Speaker of the House of Representatives, am I right? Yeah, so first time I saw her just after I had arrived, I was too shocked uh, to do anything, even though I kind of wanted to ask her a question. Fortunately, the next morning, um, uh, just after I arrived, she was hosting a press conference with the rest of the U.S. House delegation. I went over, uh, I got in a question, um, asked her what she would say to people who still don't believe in climate change, and her and the rest of the panel, their response was essentially the most eloquent argument is the storms and what we are seeing and facing right now. Um, but after I asked her that question, she apparently was quite interested how someone from a small place in Tennessee got out here. And so I, I was talking to another congresswoman who had something to say to me, and uh, she flagged me down from the stage. I didn't realize she wanted me at first, and so I kept her waiting for like maybe more than half a minute, which you don't want to do with the like, most powerful woman from your country. But um, I, I eventually got over, uh, asked me how I got out here, um, told her I was studying in Belfast anyways, and uh, yeah, it, it was uh, quite the experience just to 
be flagged down by the Speaker of the House. And then you bumped into some Costa Ricans as well, AJ. Yes, I did. Uh, actually, just after the interview I did with you, um, there were two people sitting at my table and they thought I apparently sounded somewhat like I knew what I was doing. And the man started chatting me up. Turns out he's Costa Rica's ambassador to the United Kingdom. And we started Shame to Shame on you for not knowing that. Right? I, yeah. I can't believe I don't know every ambassador in this country. No, no, but exactly. It was, um, I noticed the pin and that ticked me off that they were from Costa Rica in some capacity and they had badges that said delegates. Um, but yeah, we bonded over their, our shared appreciation of Iron Brew and he offered me a veggie sausage roll he hadn't finished and it's quite nice, quite nice. Right, well... Um... I was just sort of slightly envious of the old iron brew sausage roll combination. I hadn't thought of that one. Um, <laughs> Flavia, on a slightly more serious note, where, I mean, uh, it's a difficult question to ask. It was, where do we go from here? Um, there's a lot of focus now, clearly, will be on the next COP, which I think is, well, will be next year and mm -hmm. is in Egypt. Um, I, I mean, will that be something that, again, is, 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 is hyped up as the, 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 ne the next last possible moment for humanity? Is that what every single one of these conferences is from now? Uh, where, does, where does the sort of the, the campaign to tackle climate change go from here? I suppose it really depends what happens between now and the next COP, because I think one of the big issues with these COPs is that a lot of expectations obviously put on these events because it's it's one of the very few opportunities in which you get that many world leaders and that many people with that much power and influence together for a considerable period of time where they can really talk about these issues and just these issues not you know get sidetracked by any anything else um so understandably there's a lot of hype around these events but obviously the proof's going to be in what happens between now and the next cop and subsequently what happens in between every cop from now on because Obviously, all these commitments are made, but they're self-imposed, they're self-policed, there's no actual international enforce enforcement whatsoever. So really, all we have to do is wait and see what happens between now and the next COP to see if it's truly been a success or not. And depending on the level of success in the next year, potentially there should there could be another warning that it's the last chance for humanity. But it really just depends how much governments decide to actually act upon the commitments they've made at this COP. But I mean, can, can I actually add to that? Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt, Thomas, but something that I think should be noted about COP27, it's a bigger deal than it was going to be before Glasgow. Uh, and th there's a structural reason for that. In the Paris Agreement, it was said that every five years, you would revisit your nationally determined contributions. So every five years, each country would say, we're going to reduce carbon emissions by this much, by this time, that sort of thing. Glasgow changed that. That was one of the few big things we got from the pact was saying, we're now going to revisit that every single year. So what made Glasgow big, being this revisit to Paris, is now also going to be the case for Egypt in every annual COP thereafter. And do you think, um, I mean, part of the process is clearly that each individual country goes to a COP and then needs to come home and try to sell it. Uh, they need to speak to their own national parliaments. They need to speak to that uh, they need to speak to the, the public at large at home. Is there a possibility, actually, that you know the, the injection of momentum, injection of energy that's come about through Glasgow, could that be a positive thing in that actually next year you might see a lot more progress because people will go back to their respective countries, populations, national parliaments, and if there's an injection of support and energy from home, it might well be the case that people can come back to Egypt next year and say, actually, we can go further. Or, or, or am I being too optimistic? I mean, my short answer would be yes. My short answer would be I would expect next year that big countries like China and the United States are going to come back with m bigger pledges. Again, the real question is, are they going to live up to those pledges? That is very hard to say. But I do think you're going to get countries increasing the pledges. And I would honestly imagine before 2030, there will be a commitment that is in line with keeping warming below 1.5 degree. I think the bigger question will be, will we get that commitment in time? And will the action follow through with that commitment? That's my personal guess. But, but I suppose part of the problem, and you've just highlighted it there, Flavia, is that um, it's so difficult to actually police all of this. Uh, and police isn't even the right word, because uh, you know what countries would need to do in order to, in order to facilitate that would be all agree that there's an independent arbiter who can adjudicate some form of justice on countries that don't live up to whatever commitments they've made. And you've got the additional problem on top of that, that, that generally speaking mm. in politics, in democracies anyway, you know, previous governments and parliaments can't bind the next one. Mm -hmm. And if you're elected on a mandate, you know, you, you have that mandate and you can do what you want with it. Um, is it, is it enough that, that, that countries are going to have to act 
under um, their own momentum and perhaps that given to them by the general population? Do you, for example, think that actually the you know the electorates in mm. uh, countries across the world are moving so fast and are, are jumping onto this issue and starting to see the real dangers that come about uh, as a consequence of climate change that actually that's enough that general mm. support is enough and, and you don't necessarily need to do something so difficult as negotiating an independent arbiter to try to police it all mm. i think there's two things there because obviously a big part of making sure that these commitments are met is obviously going to be pressure from the public and activists and whatnot. So as long as it's an issue that's getting sufficient public attention, then there will be pressure on politicians to sort of meet those demands. In terms of actually policing what happens, it doesn't necessarily need to be the case that they all need to come together and set up an independent organisation that's going to police it because... It, quite frankly, that would be really problematic in terms of working out who gets appointed onto the board of that, who gets the power to do it, etc. But what some countries can do and what some countries will be doing is they'll be um, incorporating the commitments into their legal framework. And what that does is, you know, that does bind future governments, which could be potentially an issue, but it also empowers populations to bring legal cases against countries who fail to meet those commitments, which is a, an, another really powerful tool for for activists and the public to kind of hold their governments to account because I think the big problem at the moment is um, and hopefully we'll see that changing with commitments being revised annually but it's that a lot of governments are making commitments for the next decade or the next 20 years but realistically most political mandates don't last that long so you know it's kind of kicking the can down the road you're making a commitment for something within 20 years but you know that chances are you're probably not going to be in power by then. Um, so I think realistically the best option is for when those targets are incorporated into a legal framework because then there is something that governments and future governments can be held to account. Yeah. Um, AJ, is there a, a being in and around sort of delegates and, and, and the people who worry about all the legalese of this kind of stuff, is there any, uh, what, what are your thoughts on that question of trying to police uh, and, and hold countries to account for the commitments that they've made or is that just something that's you know, it's just never going to happen. It's reality of, 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 of politics and perhaps of democracy and of the world in which we live. I, I think the short answer is it's never going to happen. Yeah. Um, the uh, first thing you learn in international relations course is there is nothing above governments. Yeah. The United Nations is not above governments. It's governments meeting together. So you're never going to have that. You can't get some things close. Uh, and that's one of the big things, again, about COP26 is they, they have some new mechanisms in there. They have new reports to try and see whether countries are living up to their nationally determined contributions. Um, and they are re-amping, they're supposed to readjust those nationally determined contributions every year. So that, that, that's, that's something that can happen. Um, but in terms of what we're going to see, I will say one thing I heard quite a bit, um, um, again, going to Nigel Topping, the UK's high-level champion at COP26, he he was very keen in pointing out the only actors here are not national governments. So are we going to see Congress in the United States or the Parliament in Australia or who have you actually implement the legislation to live up to those promises? In all likelihood, probably not, with possibly no single country. But we are going to have local governments doing that. We are going to have uh, private enterprises that are taking steps. And if, if people get out there, if they make their politicians care, and if they make companies care by refusing to buy products that aren't sustainable, uh, there is a real path here to really mitigate these impacts. And it's probably the case, uh, you know, Flavia as well, that, um, you know, individuals do are, are relatively powerful in all of this. If it is the case that, that governments act because they are under pressure from the electorate, that's in some ways an empowering message for the electorate to know yeah. that, you know, that, that, that their individual actions on a tiny level, but clearly, you know, over the course of an, an entire population. I mean, that's where, in some ways, the authority and the power is going to come from. But I think that's slightly different from what the message to individuals has been around climate change historically. I think... The individual's powerful is different from the individual's responsible, which okay. was the message that was going out for decades that, you know, individuals could make changes and small little changes would add up and eventually climate change would be a problem because of individual action. I think now we know and it's generally accepted that that's not the case. Individuals can make a difference. But realistically, we need huge systemic change before climate change is going to be averted. So the message is individuals are powerful. They do have power. They have political power. They have they have consumer power. They can influence the behavior of companies. But I think that's slightly different from what individuals have historically been told about climate change. And I suppose there's two other things I want to quickly raise, AJ. One of them is this agreement, or whether it is agreement, between the US and China in a particularly, uh, during a particularly febrile sort of uh, relationship 
between those two countries. That's one thing. And the other thing is this issue of loss and damage and financial compensation is the word they don't want you to use, but uh, payments to go from sort of the global north to the global south. Um, first of all, on that issue between the US and China, is there anything there really? Or is that just something that 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 is kind of on a piece of paper and actually, in fact, everything will just continue as it were? I remember with that, I was actually went to the China press conference where they announced it. At the time, it just said China press conference. Didn't know what was happening. When they said through the interpretation that they'd reached an agreement with the US, half of the reporters ran out to go and you know, stop the presses, say, hey, we've got a big news story. By the end, all of the journalists were saying, oh, well, there's no substance here. Um, the short of it is it actually kind of mirrors the Glasgow Climate Pact that we got in that what it does is it sets up a permanent working group. And the goal of that working group will be to determine concrete action to be taken. So rather like, the, rather like Glasgow, what we have is increase the amount that we talk about climate change, kick the can down a road a little bit, but no actual substance in itself. Uh, the one big notable thing is that China has said they will release a plan to control methane emissions by next year, but there's nothing about what the goal of that plan is going to be. And currently, uh, the, the Chinese say that their goal date for achieving net zero is 2060? 2060, okay. yes. Um, so clearly, uh, you know, it will need to be the case that the journalists, I'm sure, will be following up on, on whether there's any concrete action does come about as a mm -hmm. consequence of that. Uh, a final question is about this loss and damages article clause. Well, what's that all about? What does that mean? Uh, short of it is, well, Marshall Islands, Kiribati, the nations that are going to be suffering the most, they didn't do anything where they did relatively little to contribute to the climate change problem. And so when it comes to loss and damage, there is this question of, they're already going to lose something. How should the Global North repay them? How should we help them? How should the Global North help them to suffer less? How, sh how much should we give funding for these countries to build seawalls and things like that? And in like terms that? of concrete action, I mean, there was a goal at one stage, AJ, was there not for 100 billion? Uh, yes. Where's that gone? So we've fallen short of it. We're at somewhere between 80 and $90 billion a year. Um, it is estimated that that will be reached by 2023. Uh, but there was new language in the, in the Glasgow Climate Pact that calls for the current amount of funding to be doubled by the year 2025. Um, so there was language very, very much strengthening this. Um, but also there were a lot of questions as to where this climate finance goes. Does it always go to the right people? Does it always go to the people who need it? Mm. It's a really complex issue, and I, I wish I could uh, explain it in better detail. But the short is... Um, that didn't pan up being as big as was expected going in, but there is language that asks for it to be uh, stepped up a lot more than it is right now. Okay, we've got around two or three minutes before we finish up, guys. I want to ask a final question, a nice difficult one for you. Uh, was COP26 a success? Flavia, what do you think? Hmm. I think it was as successful as it could be, in all honesty, given sort of the current situation, um, given that, you know, it is getting extremely urgent now but having said that the changes that we need are on such a scale that it's almost not really reasonable to expect all these world leaders to get into a room over 12 days and absolutely work out everything that needs to be worked out so i think it was a success in the sense that we are seeing wording in there that previously wouldn't have been recognized you know fossil fuels um even damages i mean that's going almost a step closer to acknowledging that the global North has some responsibility historically over emissions, which will go some way to building trust. Um, so I think in some aspects, it's it's been reasonably successful or as successful as it could be, I would say. I don't think it's lived up to the hype, but I think potentially the expectations that were placed on it may have been a bit too high to start with. Okay, same question, AJ. Was COP26 a success? I think if you look at its stated goals, no. It did not secure 1.5, although you could argue it kept it in reach, but it was going to be within reach regardless of what was said at the conference. Um, but I think in a bigger sense it was because it has continued and it has put climate at the center of national attention. And I really do believe that what's going to really make the difference is smaller governments that don't have to worry so much about these big scale politics and it's going to be businesses and it's going to be people. Um, but I will say one thing in terms of uh, another way to look at the success, the change in pledges for reductions in greenhouse gas emissions cut the difference between what we need to get to 1.5 and where we are right now by 40%. So to put this in another way, by the time we get to COP28 in 2023, if this trend continues, what we will see is that we have the pledges to keep 1.5 alive. Again, it'll be a question to 
putting those into action, but it's a step in the right direction and I'd say generally a success. Okay, well, that's going to have to be us for this week. Thank you so much to all my guests for giving me their time. Thank you to our fantastic Scoop uh, COP26 team, especially AJ, Emer, Flavia and Olivia for all of their work over the last couple of weeks. Remember, you can follow The Scoop on Facebook, on Instagram and on Twitter. Follow our five weekday podcasts. Check out the online newspaper and I'll see you back here soon for The Scoop on Sunday. Thank you so much for your company tonight. My name's Thomas Copeland. This has been The Scoop on Sunday. Night-night.